All right, everybody, welcome back for part two. Again, this is David Rayburn, your host, and we have the great Dr. Mavish Rahim here with us to talk about some inherited red cell disorder. So this is kind of a hodgepodge, miscellaneous, you just really need to know the facts about these just in case it pops up on your boards. Yeah, I think hodgepodge is a great way to describe it, so we'll just get right into it and start going through all the various things the board wants you to know. So the first one is um, hereditary spherocytosis. This is one of the most commonly tested membranopathies. It's a membranopathy, so there's something wrong with the red blood cell membrane. Um, autosomal dominant inheritance, that's always key on boards to know how then what the inheritance pattern is. Um, and in this, essentially, the red blood cell membrane is not properly attached to the cytoskeleton due to defects in spectrin and or incrin, um, which are crucial for uh, membrane interactions. So this loss of the membrane surface area relative to the red blood cell intracellular volume leads you to what you need to know, which is that on a CBC, there will be an increase in your MCHC. And that is one of the most key points to look at when the board gives you that CBC result. And you may, they're getting away from as many picture questions, but this may be one where you get a smear and you just have this big old ball-looking yeah, hemoglobin, and that is your spherocyte. Right. So. Presentation clinically, you're going to be presented with a non-immune hemolytic anemia. Um, so pallor, fatigue, jaundice, splenomegaly, all of those good hemolytic and hemolytic clinical presentation signs. Uh, Lab-wise, you'll start seeing some elevated bilirubin levels from the breakdown of the red blood cells, elevated LDH from turnover of the red blood cells. Um, but it's non-immune, so your Coombs testing will be negative. Again, just like our sickle cell patients, the hereditary spherocytosis patients are at increased risk for parvovirus-associated um, aplasia. And hereditary spherocytosis used to be treated as standard of care with, spleen, with a splenectomy, but that is no longer the standard of care for our hereditary spherocytosis patients. I think keeping that in mind um, would be one of the most one of the important things for the boards. Looking at our next um, uh, hemolytic anemia, we can move forward to a red blood cell enzyme disorder. One of the most common red blood cell enzyme disorder tested is G6PD deficiency. So G6PD deficiency, one of the biggest keywords with that is fava beans. So keeping in mind that you might have a patient who's been exposed to um, either a fava bean in their diet or a new medication, which is a sulfa drug, and all of a sudden have a triggered uh, hemolytic anemia, and you'll see those same clinical symptoms of hemolysis with um, pallor, fatigue, jaundice, splenomegaly, and the same lab results. Again, this is non-immune, so your Coombs testing will be negative, but your LDH will be elevated, your total bilirubin will be elevated, your haptoglobin will be low, so that's a key point there. G6PD deficiency, one of the things that the board might want to trick you up on is when you can test for that. You cannot test for G6PD deficiency during an acute hemolytic attack, and that's because those baby red blood cells that your bone marrow is going to start churning out due to the hemolysis have five times the normal level of G6PD enzymes, so you're going to get a false negative testing because all those baby red blood cells will have lots of G6PD and you'll miss the G6PD deficiency. I think the keys here are probably going to be X-linked and the fact that you're going to see the patient uh, presentation is going to be a new anemia after starting a medication 
mm-hmm. uh, most likely. I That's think it's how they're going to present yeah, it. Exactly. Definitely. And don't forget about the fava beans. Yes. <laughs> So we looked a lot at non-immune hemolytic anemias, but there is a good subset of autoimmune hemolytic anemias that can get tricky. The difference here in your lab values is that your Coombs testing will be positive. This is typically going to be presented on the boards in that newborn period with that little baby who's jaundiced for just a little bit longer than they should be. And when you do, when you look a little bit further at your medical history, mom would be an O blood type and they would have had that opportunity to build up those anti-A, anti-B antibodies. Baby will be type A, B, or AB for their blood type um, and have that ABO setup and ABO incompatibility. Coombs testing would be positive on the baby. I think that that ABO incompatibility setup is one of the biggest autoimmune hemolytic anemias that you'll end up seeing on the pediatric boards. And again, just kind of thinking of the high yield aspect of this, it's probably going to, your question stem is likely going to be a baby with prolonged jaundice. um, And then they may tell you what the Coombs testing is. And in this case, it's going to be Coombs positive. Yep, I think that kind of squares away the autoimmune hemolytic anemias that would be high yield for the boards, keeping in mind that there are many others out there. That you'll be tested on. That I'll be tested on, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Um, Another really... Um, neat disorder that, or yeah, disorder that might be tested on is transient erythroblastopenia of childhood, or TEC, T-E-C. The trick to this is that it's completely self, it self-resolves. There isn't anything that you as a clinician have to do, but what you'll often find is a child who um, is presenting after viral infection, and they will be noted to have anemia as well as a reticulocytopenia, meaning their bone marrow is not churning out those reticulocyte or baby red blood cells. This is typically in early childhood, up to six years of age, like I said, preceded by an upper respiratory tract infection and will resolve within two to eight weeks. Um, so nothing for you to necessarily do except just observe. The, diff- the um, thing that you'll be tested to try and differentiate between is diamond black fan anemia, which is going to be a pure red blood cell aplasia, also a reticulocytopenia, meaning your bone marrow is not creating those reticulocytes. But with diamond black fan syndrome um, or diamond black fan anemia, the anemia presents at a much younger age and does not self-resolve. So for these patients, you'll often find that you um, will end up doing chronic transfusions and eventually may even lead to a bone marrow transplant for a potential cure. Some other things that are associated with diamond black fan anemia are congenital abnormalities like thumb or upper limb abnormalities, cleft palate, Um, Not to be confused with Fanconi anemia, which can also give you some thumb abnormalities, but that will present with a pancytopenia instead of a pure red blood cell aplasia. And again, we we apologize for the hodgepodge nature of these, but these are just ones that you have to know. There's some buzzwords associated with it, uh, like we just mentioned, the thumb abnormalities with uh, diamond black fan um, and Fanconi as well, but differentiating those by diamond black fan being the pure red cell aplasia versus um, fanconia, fanconia anemia, which you'll have a pancytopenia. So again, our apologies, but listen back through this. You'll pick up some points and pearls, and then hopefully you'll get a few more points on the boards. Is that it? Yeah, that's oh, it. Oh, well, I mean, there that's we all go. The, that's all the yeah. <laughs> Perfect. All so, right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again for sitting down with us. Yeah, of course. All right.